The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. We're back in John's Gospel this morning. Chapter 19, where Jesus has been given into the hands of Pilate. And when we read this account, we might wonder just who's in charge. Is it Pilate? Is it the Jewish authorities using Pilate? But knowing who Jesus is, we would say Jesus is in charge. And of course, Jesus tells us that the true and ultimate authority here comes from above. This morning's text describes the ultimate injustice, the greatest abuse of authority. It describes the fear of Pilate and the confidence of Jesus who knows who's in perfect control of his life. And we too face injustices. And once again, having a confidence in the sovereignty of God, this is our help. And in thinking about injustice, I want to consider two questions this morning. When is it right for us to disobey? And if we do, how might we face the fearful consequences? One example of courage under injustice is seen in a Christian pastor who, in 2005, was prohibited by his government from preaching the gospel and giving away Bibles and other gospel materials. In 2006, he was arrested and criminally charged for reading the Bible in a public park. Between 2005 and 2015, he was arrested 12 times for crimes related to preaching, congregating, feeding the poor. Because of these persecutions, he ended up relocating his home seven times. Every month, his church would feed thousands of homeless and less fortunate, including the working poor and single moms. They provided services without any government assistance. From 2020 to 2022, the church has been harassed and fined on a regular basis, receiving over 40 tickets, multiple trials, and within a few months, five arrests some done by SWAT-style operations. They've been charged of crimes, including inviting people to church, officiating an illegal church service, participating in illegal gatherings to feed the poor, and organizing illegal church gatherings. His church has dealt with over 100 officers and gang suppression units, harassing and intimidating them. For refusing to shut down the church and to stop feeding the poor, this pastor faces criminal charges and huge fines. He was imprisoned, tortured physically and psychologically, and he learned from fellow prisoners that the guards were actually giving them incentives to beat him. After 52 days... In solitary confinement, he was finally allowed to leave the prison, being instructed that he was forbidden to associate with any of his supporters. 
He was allowed to leave, but he is not free. He's currently under house arrest, not allowed to leave his home, and certainly not allowed to preach or feed the poor. He faces a $25,000 fine, and to guarantee his compliance, his own family is the bond that will be kept if he steps out of line. If you don't already know this story, you might wonder which dictatorship would be so cruel to one of its citizens, which government is such an enemy to Christianity. Is it Russia, uh, Poland, Turkey? No, much closer to home. This pastor's name is Arthur Pulowski, a citizen of Canada. It's not very hard to imagine, is it? These kinds of possibilities as we see God giving our country over to a depraved mind. Where up is down, wrong is right, and our government for political reasons, will not even enforce its own laws. And it justifies, even approves of protests that they know are illegal, violent, and meant to intimidate. So pray that God will have mercy and turn our country around. Pray that we can gladly obey with a respectful appreciation for those in authority over us. Pray for those in authority over us. Let's not stop doing that. Pray that Pray that we're not put into situations where we're forced to say we must obey God rather than men. Excuse me. <coughs> But as we pray, we should probably think some more about what the Bible has to say about authority and when disobedience is actually right. In fact, let's pray together right now. Pray with me, please. Father, we lift up our brother, Pastor Arthur Pulowski, his family and church family. Thank you for giving him the courage to stand in the face of great injustice and persecution. We pray that you will comfort him and reassure him that you see, that you are with him, that you are sovereign over this, and that your purposes are always for the good of those who love you. Lord, continue to give Arthur confidence in you. Guard him from injury, both physically and psychological. Grant him and his family your your peace in the midst of this terrible storm. Thank you that Jesus is and will ultimately be victorious. And we pray that Arthur will see vindication and freedom. Father, this is 
close to home. And we don't know if, if similar challenges may come to us. So we thank you for our current freedoms. And we ask that you would keep our country from slipping further into decisions that resemble this level of government overreach. Protect the various people and organizations that represent life. Protect our judicial system and the Supreme Court justices who are under the threat of violence. Lord, please see their decisions through. Grant people the freedom to vote on this matter of life. And certainly we pray that you would open eyes and change hearts concerning this terrible holocaust of abortion. Lord, have mercy on us. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, so that we might have wisdom and know how best to honor you and to do your will and to submit to your greater and ultimate authority. Lord, guard us from simply being rebellious and desiring our own way, but instead to act in ways that seek the glorification of your name. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. (coughs) Forgive me. John 19, uh, verses 6 through 12. When the chief priests and the officers saw Jesus, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, John writes with a lot of irony. Seems like we keep seeing it as we read through this gospel of John and certainly hear a lot of irony. The Jews 
Of course, they hated, they despised having Rome in authority over them. And yet they appeal to this authority to accomplish their unjust desires. I, I have a cough drop. It's not working. Just pray that I can talk. Thank you. <laughs> Here comes more help. <clears throat> I need, do I need warm water? Is that it? Oh, it doesn't, okay. All this attention. <clears throat> so a lot of irony. They despise Rome, and yet, um, you know, as if Rome, they can care less about this charge of blasphemy. This charge of blasphemy, they say, deserving of death. And the great irony that we see is that they, they view this blasphemy Jesus' claim to be the Son of God is not blasphemy at all because it's true. And they are rejecting, they are crucifying their long-awaited Messiah, Jesus, who proved himself, his deity, over and over and over again. And when this claim is revealed to Pilate, His response is fear. As a Roman, Pilate is uh, superstitious. He has this category for a, a, a God coming to earth, appearing in the world. And so he goes back to Jesus and asks, where are you from? And he didn't mean, tell me where you grew up. Give me a little background. What he meant is, Who are you? What kind of God are you? Tell me some more. And all of the four Gospels emphasize the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 7 and Jesus' silence. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. And if we're simply about human justice and self-preservation, we might wonder why. Why would Jesus not tell him the truth? Why did he remain silent? But what could he say that would answer Pilate's true question, having to do with his pagan religious categories? And why would Jesus potentially undo the very plan of God? Pilate had already pronounced Jesus not guilty, but punished him anyway. And some have seen a lesson of warning here that if if people harden themselves to Jesus' self-revelation to them, there may come a time when Jesus no longer speaks to them. And in this case, with Pilate, Jesus' silence angered and offended him, and he says, will you not speak to me? Another irony, as Pilate basically says, don't you know who I am? Don't you realize my authority? That I have the the authority to free you or have you crucified? 
oh, the irony. As God the Son, who spoke everything into existence, the one responsible for Pilate's beating heart to continue, the one who holds everything together, to have a part of his creation say, I'm in charge of you. May this be a lesson to us in any struggle that we might have in fearing man and his threats of power over us. Yes, there is an authority, and yes, they may be able to kill the body, but they have no authority to kill our souls. And Jesus' answer brings it back to the sovereign authority of God saying, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. His, his confidence is in the ultimate authority of God, the one who gives Pilate his authority. But notice that something interesting here. Notice that Jesus still recognizes the fact that Pilate does have authority over him. There is a difference between power and authority. Power is the ability to enforce compliance, while authority is the right to rule and govern. Pilate was in a position of power. No one doubted this ability. But what Jesus acknowledges here is his authority or his his legal right because of his position as a civil official. Jesus teaches that there is civil authority. There are those who have the legal right to rule and govern. And Christians of all people ought to obey and respect civil authorities. Because we of all people should know that God is the one who gave this authority. Not just the power, but the authority, the legal right to govern. Knowing that God is the ultimate authority doesn't mean that we're, we're free to ignore our governing authorities. It means that we recognize God's authority through the very means that he gives. So if, if there is any disobedience, it probably should be, it probably should be rare and not something that's based on our personal preferences. The Bible tells us to submit to governing authorities. So if we disobey, we better be sure. We better not be justifying a rebellious spirit. When Jesus was asked about paying taxes to Caesar, don't you think the context of this government, this pagan authority, don't you think they were doing some some really ungodly things with that money? And yet, this didn't seem to be a part of Jesus' answer. As he said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Jesus recognizes that the government has been given authority, the right to rule. And if we consider this, this context, it doesn't seem that our obedience is based on their level of godliness. 
Paul clearly states in Romans 13, in a time of ungodly pagan authority, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And his justification for this command sounds a lot like the explanation that Jesus gave. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And this isn't to say that there aren't good reasons for civil disobedience. Settle down. But what we get from this is that it's pretty, it's a weighty, weighty decision. God's people should be seen as respectful and obedient and not rebellious. Our starting place is an understanding that secular rulers receive their authority by God's sovereign rule, and they are to be respected and obeyed as far as possible. James Boyce commented that Pilate pronounced wrongly, as we know, his authority was from God. Jesus did not suggest that it be wrested from him because he had made even so great an error as condemning the Son of God. Makes all of our situations tend to pale in comparison. So we of all people should be model citizens. We should be respectful. But this does not mean that we don't work within democratic means to replace those that we disagree with, to repeal unjust laws. And unlike some today, if we don't get our way, we don't rebel. We don't lose our minds and resort to mob rule and violence and threats of violence. There's a difference between the people of God and rebels. And we can do this because God is sovereign. There's a bigger picture, a bigger kingdom, and we're told to rightly represent him. This should be our attitude based on scripture. And yes, biblically speaking, there are also limits to worldly authority and reasons to disobey. But these reasons always come back, they always come back to a heart of obedience. As Western Christians, we, we value freedom and independence. But what we should see in Jesus' statement is that we're always obligated to obey. And because there's always some, we're always obligated to obey, obey because there's always some authority over us, whether it be our government or God. So if we must disobey the lesser God-given authority of government, it's only because we must obey God. What examples do we have? Well, the clear biblical example given to us and one that Pastor Arthur is right to disobey has to do with the government prohibiting preaching or sharing the gospel. Jesus commands us, he commands us to go and share the gospel. We're commanded to not 
forsake our gathering together for worship. And we see the response of Peter and John when the Sanhedrin told them to stop preaching. They replied, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And later on, when they're hauled in for this offense, they said, we must obey God. We must obey God rather than men. As Christians, we must see civil disobedience as not simply our personal preferences, but as a matter of obedience to God. So knowing what God commands of you is an important part of your discernment. And we've all been forced to think about this a little more in the last few years. So, as a church, it's our conviction. It's our conviction to gather in person, not only because we want to, primarily and most importantly because God commands it. So if we must, we will resist laws that prohibit our gathering for worship and to hear the gospel preached. But the motive is not rebellion. It's not simply to be disobedient, but a conviction to obey what God commands of us. And if you're sick and are considering others, that's why we live stream. But when you're well, our norm is to obey God and to gather, to be together, because God tells us to. A second biblically clear situation where we must disobey is when we're told to sin. I know I'm being very general here. Um, This can be both very obvious and difficult to discern. Authority has to do with a a legal right to govern, but no government has the legal right to cancel out the laws of God. Again, we disobey in order to obey. It's not simply that we're given the okay to ignore our leaders. No, if we disobey, it must be to obey God. So if we find ourselves in a situation where we must violate the laws of man, it's because we'd rather accept the consequences of their punishment than to sin against our God. Many uh, will give the example of Nazi Germany and their command to have no dealings, commanding the people to have no dealings with Jews and to turn them in to be oppressed and murdered. And many Christians, sadly, had a greater fear of man and obeyed this sinful command. And that's really obvious, isn't it? Should be. One Christian pastor, Martin Niemöller, regretted his initial apathy, but eventually he refused this order and continued to preach and speak out against the government atrocities. A Christian friend once visited him in jail and urged him to to keep quiet because if he kept quiet, if he agreed to keep quiet, they'd set him free. Knowing this, the man said to him, so why are you in jail? And Nemoller answered, 
Why aren't you in jail? It's natural to want to protect ourselves and to avoid conflict. And yet, we have a moral obligation to speak against sins like abortion and racism and sexual sins and perversions of God's design. And as ambassadors of Christ, shouldn't our motive be love? Even a love that's willing to accept the unjust and hard consequences because God's honor is our highest priority and his truth will always be what's best and what's most loving to people. And what this looks like will be Well, it'll be different for different people because our roles are different. What's wise and discerning for where God has placed each of us. But whatever it does look like, it should never look like conformity. It should never look like agreement with sinful society. It should never look like disobedience to God in order to avoid the consequences of man. The first question had to do with when it's right to disobey. The first clear biblical example is when we're told not to preach or share the gospel. A second is when our governing authorities command us to sin. And our overarching attitude should always be one of obedience instead of rebellion. If we must disobey man, it's always and only for the sake of obeying God. And thinking of the fearful consequences leads us to our second question. How do, we, how do we courageously face the threat of man? And it all gets back to, to who or what we fear. Think of this account we've just read in John 19. Pilate heard the Jews say that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, and this created a level of fear in him. Who am I dealing with here? But Pilate also feared the Jews. He kept trying to release Jesus because he knew that he was innocent. And because Pilate's own wife was troubled by a dream and warned him, all of this fear. And now because there was this reference to Jesus being some kind of God, but Pilate's actions showed that he had a greater fear of the Jews. He had a greater fear of their threat to complain and cause trouble with Caesar, who was his ultimate fear. The emperor, Tiberius Caesar, was paranoid and suspicious of any disloyalty of his servants. And if the Jews told Caesar that Jesus claimed to be a king and Pilate let him go, he knew that Caesar would hear this as a disloyal threat to his position of authority. He would be no friend to Caesar, and Caesar knew what to do with his enemies. And Pilate knew this. J.C. Ryle commented that Pilate would rather connive at a murder to please the Jews than allow himself to be charged with neglect of imperial interests and unfriendliness to Caesar. So Pilate's an example to us, an example of the fear of man, one that we should not follow. But Jesus gives us another example of how to face the threats of man. The first thing that we see 
is that Jesus was fully aware of God's sovereignty over every detail of his life. When Jesus said to Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above, he recognizes that not only is Pilate accountable to God, but that Pilate could only do to him what God permitted. Much like God said to Satan concerning Job, only what God permitted. He is sovereign. Jesus knew that God's will would be done, and so he trusted himself to his heavenly Father. Do you trust God? Do you trust that he is sovereign over every detail of your life? This doesn't mean that he will keep you from persecution or suffering. But it does mean that he permits it for a greater purpose. It does mean that the result of your suffering will be so glorious that when you see it, you will never think of accusing God of neglect or abuse. You may not understand it in this life, but God does promise to be working all things for your good. He does promise that every affliction is meant to prepare you for glory and that the glory received as a result of these things will far outweigh the severity and length of your suffering. Seeing the truth of God's sovereignty and trusting him will give us the courage to face the threats of man and obey God instead of him. Trusting in a sovereign God will enable us to face the fear of man like like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember these men who chose to obey God rather than the sinful command of their government. And at the threat of being thrown into a fiery furnace, they respectfully declined saying, God is able to deliver us. God is able to deliver us. But if not, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image. They were obedient to God. And regardless of the outcome, they trusted him. A second way to avoid the fear of man is to grow in our knowledge of God's word. Uh, James Boyce writes, to want to do the right thing is not enough. We must know what the right thing is. And there's no way to know that apart from God's specific revelation of his standards in the Bible. Some things are much more obvious than others. If, if our government... If our government constructed a giant golden statue of our president and declared that he was God and that we must bow to worship it, I expect that this would be pretty easy for you to see and disobey. If we're told that Christianity is now against the law and any preaching or evangelism would be a punishable offense, I would hope that this would be obvious to us, that we'd have a, a greater loyalty to God, to obeying him and trusting him with, with any persecution. 
but some things are not as obvious. They require discernment. And discernment implies that we have something to work with, that we're searching the scriptures and growing in our knowledge of God's word. Jesus knew the scriptures. He knew himself in those scriptures and that he came to rescue us. And his reaction of silence, not wanting to escape or talk his way out of this, which he could have, it's evidence of this. He knew. We need to know God's word. We need to know his will. We need to know that Jesus has called us to be witnesses concerning the good news of the cross. We need to know that we represent him by lives of holiness and obedience to his word, by our attitudes and all of these terrible things that are going on. Is there a time for civil disobedience? Yes, absolutely. Of course there is. We have many examples in God's word, and it's always done with a knowledge of what God commands and a heart that desires to obey him. Lastly, standing against the threats of man involves surrendering our will. Surrendering our will to the will of God. We are only free from the fear of man by having a greater fear of the Lord. And when we do, we will surrender ourselves to him over any threats of man. Pilate was given a true witness concerning the person of Christ, but he did not yield himself to the truth. But in the example of Jesus, we see him prior to this agonizing, agonizing in the garden, praying that if there was any other way, praying for the Father to remove this cup of suffering, and yet he concluded, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus surrendered his will to the will of the Father. The threats of man, yes, they are a fearful thing. It's not wrong for us to cry out to God and ask him to remove suffering. And if he doesn't, the example that we see in Jesus is that we can face the threats of man as we cling to the sovereignty of God in every area of our lives, as we seek to know his will in the scriptures, as we surrender ourselves to his good and always perfect will. In other words, we can trust him. He is worthy. So if we find ourselves in a situation where we must disobey man, May it only be for the sake of obeying God as we trust him, as we know his word and are confident of this decision, as we surrender ourselves to his always sovereign, always good will for our lives. Let's pray. Our great and glorious God, what an example we have in the person of Jesus. Help us to look to your authority and care for us, to fear you and not man. 
Give us a right respect for those you have placed in authority over us. And this is becoming more and more challenging, Lord, as we see so many things that are wrong, that are deceitful, and do not represent your ways. And with this in mind, help us. Remind us to pray. Lord, we pray for our leaders and ask that you would convict them. Convict them of their apathy to do what you've called them to do. Convict them to rule with honesty and humility. And sadly, this request, Lord, seems like we're asking you to part the seas or something. And and you've done this. And so we can we can know we we know that you can do what we ask, but we trust that you will do what's best. What's best according to your always good and perfect plan. Lord, give us hearts of obedience. Give us wisdom to know and submit to your will. And if this leads to disobeying man, may it only be for the sake of obeying and honoring you. Thank you, Lord, for the confidence we can have in you. And also, Lord, we give thanks for this time of fellowship, this meal that we're about to share, and the hands who have prepared it. Bless bless this meal. Bless them, those who have prepared it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.